Hello, good evening, and welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're very glad that you're joining us tonight. No, I didn't tell you what it is. Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast, which is guided for the most part by your questions on the Bible. So if you have questions on the Bible, maybe a verse or passage of Scripture, maybe something you're going through in your life, you'd like a biblical perspective, or maybe something going on in the world at large, um, or even other belief systems or Christianity itself. Any question, as long as you know, we're going to delve into the Bible to find the answers. We appreciate those honest questions from the heart, and we're here to help uh, find those answers and navigate through the Word with the help of the Holy Spirit and the Word itself. So we're very glad that you're joining us. We have trying out this kind of new setup a little bit today. Um, my name is Dave Robson. I didn't mention that. I'll be your host and fielding those questions as they come on in with us today also. Pastor Sean Richards, how are you doing today? Look me in the eye and ask that again. <laughs> yes, your eyes look a little red. Allergies hitting you hard this uh, season? Yes, for those of you who don't understand the colloquialism, uh, we have a saying here in Tucson, uh, the Palo Verde trees uh, produce a kind of pollen that's bright yellow, so we say, don't sniff the yellow snow. Yes, indeed. Yeah, those get me every time, too. Uh, we also have Pastor Peter Martin. How are you doing today? Doing good. You seem far from me. <laughs> I can barely see you over there. I know. I have to kind of talk a little louder. So You, you do have to talk a little louder. I was going to talk over to... my huge cranium. <laughs> That's right. I was going to offer to do the intro for you. You're talking a little faster over there. A little out of breath. <laughs> All the work you've been doing today. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I did a little bit of setup in the studio. We're trying out this, some new things here, trying to find what we're going to settle with. But uh, anyway, we're very glad that you uh, join us. Thank you, Sean and Peter, for being with us and making yourself available to answer those questions. As I mentioned, uh, Reason of Hope is a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time here in Tucson, Arizona, or wherever that is for you all around the world. Of course, through the internet, you can join us all around the world. And we have people that do, which uh, we're very glad for. Uh, you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Uh, while you're there, just take a look around. Uh, don't be a stranger. Uh, we'd love for you to find out more about our church here in Tucson, Arizona. And certainly if you're in the Tucson, Arizona area, you're welcome to come check us out if you're looking for somewhere to fellowship. But the purposes of this evening, if you follow that watch live tab right there at calvarychristianfellowship.com, it will take you out to our live page. The direct link is ccftucson.online.church. And when we're offline, you'll see a countdown to our next show. You'll see a schedule of upcoming events. Uh, but when we're online, you'll see the video there. You can sign in with the username of your choice and be part of the broadcast there. I'll be filled in the chat box and you can send your questions in uh, through that uh, method. Of course, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Tucson, or just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Don't forget to like and share if you've been blessed by this ministry. We'd love to reach out to your friends as well. But that's another way you can watch the broadcast and put your questions in the chat box, and I will be receiving those as well. Uh, we have an app that you can download on your mobile device, whether it's uh, iPhone or Android, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Look for that, and you'll see that red background with the white Calvary Chapel Dove logo. That's our app. And we also have a channel on Roku and Apple TV. So add that channel if you have those devices or a smart TV or one of those uh, boxes. And you'll be able to watch us on your big screen as well. Uh, we're on YouTube, of course, youtube.com slash at a reason for hope 546. Or just search for a reason for hope. That's a great place to go to watch shows that you've missed or, or re-watch them if there's a question you wanted to re-listen to. Follow that live tab right there. And anytime we've been live, it will be archived there for your viewing and listening Pleasure. So YouTube, a reason for hope. Uh, check it out. Uh, our senior pastor, Scott Richards, here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. He's going to be with us Wednesday, Thursday, Friday now. Is that right? New schedule. Uh, so he'll be here tomorrow and for the rest of the week. He's on Twitter, Scott R4H. He posts highlights uh, from the show. 
highlighted questions. He posts commentary on like world events and news events. There's so much going on in the world um, that he posts kind of from a biblical perspective. So it's very interesting to follow along with him if you're on Twitter, Scott R4H, follow along there. Um, this is a, a relatively newer platform that we're using, Rumble. If you look for a reason for hope, Bible Q&A, you will find us there. Uh, be prayerful. Um, we may be able to go live to this uh, uh, platform as well. We're kind of figuring that out right now. But at the moment, it's just archive shows that we put there. So Rumble, if you're on there, look for a reason for hope, Bible Q&A. And of course, last but not least, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. If you listen to us on the radio, you are listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded. So you'll want to use that email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, and we will get to those questions on our next show. Whew. With all that being said, Peter, would you like to pray for us today? I would. That would be great. All Let's right. do it. <laughs> well, dear God, thank you so much that we have the opportunity to be here. Thank you that we were able to get all this set up and ready for the show. I do pray for this show right now, that uh, we'd be able to speak in a way that honors your word and truth, that all those listening would be blessed as a result of that encouraged in their lives and encouraged in their relationships with you. Uh, we love you so much, God, in your name. Amen. Amen. So on Tuesdays, you guys usually do an apologetic moment or two or three <laughs> or six of them. Um, we had a question, an anonymous question, which will kind of feed into uh, your topic for today. The question was, how do you minister to someone who walks away from God after a tragedy? In this case, it was a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of feeds into why does God allow bad things to happen uh, to good people or bad things at all if he's a good God. So how do you minister to someone and what's the kind of the apologetic approach to that? Yeah, obviously the majority of this question I'll default to Peter, but just to give, I guess, the bare bones, when it comes to the problem of evil, there's going to be a few forms that this is going to come in. There's the problem of moral evil. Why does God allow bad people to get away with doing bad things? And of course, if he's a good God, wouldn't he want to intervene? in the behavior of people, and that has a different answer than the problem that we're being asked here. The problem of natural evil is more addressing just the things that go wrong in this world. That's not necessarily caused by anything, it's just something bad that happens. This can be natural disasters to, in this case, just the human frame failing to do what it would have done if we weren't in a fallen sinful world. The things that we first need to remember when ministering to people is to understand the issue ourselves. And we obviously want to keep in mind, we need to take heed that we stand lest we fall. Different context, of course, for the quote, but the point stands. If we are going to ask ourselves this question, why does God allow bad things to happen in the broadest possible sense, there's three misunderstandings, or I should say, bad assumptions that are made before this question even gets asked. And it's first and foremost an expectation of God that he never set up for himself, uh, leveling against God that he didn't agree to uphold a bargain he never made that we would like to him for him to have made, but nonetheless not one that his word supports. And when we take a step back and ask ourselves, why didn't God do what I decided he ought to do? It sounds kind of silly until you get to the emotional weight of the issues, but we're just dealing with the intellectual aspect of it right now. If we don't presume that God ought to do certain things, or at least that God's entitled to tell us what he does and doesn't do, then we can address another faulty assumption in the problem of evil, in that 
when this world is described as separated from God, the uh, author, writer, and theologian C.S. Lewis oftentimes would be quoted as saying, it's not a question of why bad things happen to good people, it's a question of why good things happen at all. You can come at that from a variety of different angles, but the emphasis that we need to place is that if this world is in conscious, active, and constant rebellion against God, what obligation does he have to bless us in light of this? It would be essentially the uh, you know Third Reich arguing with the United States why they stopped sending aid when they declared war on them. It's naturally going to be a hostile relationship, not a pleasant one. So if we ask the question, if this world's in rebellion against God and naturally shows the effects of that, not just in our biology, but in everything, that's to be expected. It's when good things happen that we ought to be surprised. And the third misunderstanding that people have, not just expecting God of things he never promised, not just expecting of God to do things that he is under no obligation to do if we were to put the shoe on the other foot, but the other interesting aspect of this accusation is that when it's used as an argument against God's existence, essentially it's ruling out the possibility that because this is happening, it flies in the face of any possible reason for me to believe that a good God is there, which comes down to the definition of what we mean by God. When people level the accusation of the problem of evil against God, what they mean by God is the sort of being that only exists to make us feel good, which, going back to the first point, is not something that God has revealed himself to be. Now, of course, when people are you know, looking at the shattered ruins of their homes, the devastated aftermath of you know, what's going on with their families, or in the other problem of evil that you and Adrian talked about yesterday, uh, when someone's allowed to do horrible things to other people, it is natural for someone to look up and ask, not just for help, but wonder why we're asking for this kind of help to begin with. If God's power could have prevented this, and if God's heart is invested enough that he would want to prevent this, then why didn't he? And of course, the obvious answer is there may be other things going on that would allow him, or that would cause him to allow this, but also noting that there is comfort in the midst of this, which is when we get away from the intellectual side and into the personal. Obviously, the problem of evil isn't a bad objection, but it does have problems with it. When we're dealing with people who are struggling with this sort of problem, especially when it causes them to walk away from God, Peter, how would you minister to them, especially in this specific kind of circumstance? Yeah, no, it's, um, as Sean said, it's a very good question. It's a very relevant one to be thinking of and something that we have to constantly go back because suffering, pain, and loss are going to be things that all of us experience at some point or another within our lives. And some of those experiences are going to be far more devastating than another. I mean, everyone's going to experience death, but there is a difference between, say, someone experiencing the death of an elderly parent, which is sad and hurtful and painful, and somebody suffering under, let's say, a teenage child who takes their own life. Right? Now, those are both experiences with loss, but one is definitely in a different category from the other. So 
when we're going to wrestle or grapple with the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, usually it doesn't become very relevant to us until it becomes real to us. Then that problem is something that we absolutely have to grapple with and come to a conclusion about. So the way I'm going to try to go about it this time, uh, we, we've addressed this issue many times on the show, but I, I want to go about it from a uh, kind of a different way than we usually do. So there's an understanding that when you go through loss, it's, it's almost like an emotional wound that you suffer. So just like a physical wound, uh, a loss of any type is going to be an emotional wound. It's going to hurt you in a emotive way, not a physical way. And therefore, there's a recovery process. So just like when you go through a physical break of a bone or you know, an illness or something like that, the intellectual understanding of what's happening is actually very important. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. So, for instance, right now my son is starting to teeth, right? So his, his teeth are starting to break through his little gums and he's in a lot of pain. Now, we can't explain this to him intellectually, like what's happening and why it's happening, but we can console and comfort him. As children get older, though, they start to be... Uh, you start to be able to explain to them exactly what's going on. So my daughter is at the age where when she gets sick or when she gets hurt, we could actually tell her what's happening, why it's happening, and help her kind of cope with it a little bit better. And there's a big difference between the, ch the kid who can't understand and the kid who can, right? For my son who can't understand, especially when we get him shots or something like that, he looks like we betrayed him to the utmost and he can never trust us again. Luckily, kids have very short memories. Uh, but once your child becomes a little older and you bring him to the dentist or take him through a very <clears throat> uncomfortable experience, you can talk to him about what this is doing for them, and that gives them enough consolation to endure the process, right, to endure the experience. So what Sean's talking about, the intellectual problem of suffering, that becomes like an anchor for your soul. It helps you get through the suffering that you're going through. But we also need to understand, well, what is the process that we're going through. What does the grieving process look like? And how do we get to the other side in a way that we're healthy, right? In a way that we're better as opposed to a way that makes us worse. So that old saw, uh, time heals all wounds, that's not true. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't properly address a wound, time will make that wound worse, right? If you break a bone and you don't set it properly, that's gonna heal crooked, right? It's gonna leave you with a limp for the rest of your life. If you cut yourself, and you don't disinfect the wound and tend to it properly, it's going to get infected and it could possibly kill you. So an emotional wound is like that. If you don't address it properly, instead of, making, instead of healing and possibly making you stronger as a result, it could actually make you crippled for the rest of your life. You, you might never get over it. And so it is important for us to understand what is the grieving process? How do we address it correctly? Therefore, getting through it in a way that actually profits us as opposed to being negative towards us. Because there are many passages that I can list. Romans chapter 5, this one, uh, Colossians chapter, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Right there, there are many different passages that speak of benefits that can come to us through suffering. But they're all preceded on the idea that you're going through it in an appropriate manner. So let me give the two kind of poles that people might go to that are negative, and then we'll try to find the center somewhere. So on one side, you'd have the stoic sufferer, right? This is the person who's going to say, I'm not going to let this bother me. 
you know, stuff happens, we get over it, life is tough, you get a helmet, you know, this is just the way things are. And they, they numb or anesthetize themselves to suffering by telling themselves they don't care. Now, that method is effective to a certain extent. This is how I dealt with the majority of my problems for the majority of my life, right? It's what enabled me to go through the combat deployments that I went through without becoming traumatized. The problems with the stoic approach to suffering is that everything that happens to you, the more you steel yourself against the emotional toll that those experiences of loss are kind of pulling you towards, the more you push out those emotions, the less emotional in general you'll become. You can't really pick and choose. You can't say like, well, I don't want to feel sadness, but I do want to feel happiness. It doesn't work that way. If you push out extreme emotions of sadness, you're also going to be negating the possibility of extreme emotions of happiness. And that's what happened to me, right? You, you become more and more numb as your life goes on. You also become more cynical, right? So you, you make fun of loss and suffering because you just have lost the ability to care about such things. And that also means that you're not going to be very compassionate or empathetic. So someone comes to you and they're like, man, this really tough thing is happening in my life. Like, well, that sucks, man. You know, maybe you should work hard. Maybe you should, you know, not think about it, you know, get drunk, you know, just get over it. That's, you know, that's the kind of advice that you're going to be able to give someone because that's all you know how to do. Uh, like I said, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that we comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received. So if you've never been comforted and this is how you are consoling yourself through suffering, then that's all you have to give someone is uh, an ab uh, advice on how to ignore the pain, not advice on how to endure it, how to go through it appropriately. On the other side of things, I don't know if there's like a fancy term for it, but it would be the overly emotive sense. It's That sounds pretty fancy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the fancy term. That is the fancy term. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, the sense where I'm going to feel everything. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to journal about it. I'm going to collect my tears and bottles and I'm going to, you know, I'm being a little bit exaggerative right now, but that, that, that kind of idea. I need Every time I have an emotion, I'm going to express it. I'm going to spill my guts to anyone who will listen to me. And again, we've all experienced people like this, like, hey, the, how are you doing today? Oh my gosh, you know, you have no idea. Thank you for asking. And then yeah. three hours later, you realize I'm still talking to the same person, right? They, they just, they, they whine and they complain and they gush and they cry and they give into their emotions so much that their emotions start to become their reality. They never really get out of those emotions. They become perpetually a victim, a perpetual oppressed individual that will never be able to get back up or to deal with their emotions in an appropriate way. They even might consider their sufferings to be like a badge of honor of, Look at these things that I've gone through. You'll never understand me, and I'm going to cry and whine and use this as a way to get away with whatever negative behaviors coming out of my life. If you look at our culture 30, 40 years ago, the majority of people dealt with problems with the stoic manner, right? It was considered really unmanly and, you know, really horrible and weak and pathetic to be overly emotive when you were going through emotional experiences. You were supposed to just, especially as a man, you were supposed to just deal with it. You know, don't, don't express it, just deal with it. And you know what? You're lucky that God lets anything good happen to you, man. Like you shouldn't be crying. <laughs> yeah. You just tough it up, you know? And then the, on the other side, people who, uh, today, right today, people are more on the emotive side. And so people who try to be stoic and get through things are like, Hey man, what's your inner self saying? Mm -hmm. You know, talk to me, bro. Like what's really going on? Open up to me. You know, I really want to hear what's going on. 
and it, it can become a little bit weird and a little like Dr. Phil. So what's the happy middle, right? How, how are we supposed to approach our grief in a way where it doesn't cripple us? It doesn't lock us in our trauma on one side, but on the other side, doesn't steal us from any amount of emotion on the other side, make us bitter and cynical and uh, lack of any compassion or inner vitality within our emotional world. What do we do? Well, the Bible calls this process mourning, right? And uh, there's one psalm that says, those who weep or mourn for the night will rejoice in the morning, right? There's this idea that I can grieve appropriately and that will produce something good for me. Uh, there's another passage in, I think it's Psalm 80, where he says, those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Yeah. So if I'm grieving appropriately, if I'm weeping appropriately, then I will be able to receive joy. Now, you notice right off the bat, just in those couple verses, you see the medium in there. This passage would hit the stoic because it's telling you you have to weep. But it would also hit the overly emotive person because it's telling you that eventually you're going to rejoice. You're not going to be, you're not weeping for the sake of weeping. You're weeping for the sake of processing the grief and moving on, right? That's the whole point of what you're doing. Um, so how does this grief look like? Well, the first thing that I'll point out is that the Bible doesn't really talk about this. It assumes it, right? You see it throughout the scriptures. It just assumes this is happening. The first thing we have to understand is that grieving is supposed to be a communal thing. You're supposed to grieve amongst a community. Even in our culture today, we understand this to an extent. Why do we have memorials, right? Why do people go to memorials and we, we now call them like celebrations of life and things like that. That's not what you go to a memorial. You go to a memorial to commemorate the loss that you're all experiencing collectively. Yeah, you I, go there to grieve, right? Yeah, I, I hosted one this weekend. I had to continuously remind people. I'm just, I'm trying to be there. I'm trying to be strong for my friend. I'm like, this is kind of the place to experience those emotions. It's yeah, not to, wrong. To yeah, absolutely. Right. That's what you're there to do. Now, uh, back in the day, I think they went a little overboard and they would actually hire professional mourners. <laughs> whalers. Uh, but, yeah, whalers. But, you know, their heart was in the right place. What they're saying is you're going through something really difficult and it's good for you to be able to have an appropriate place to lament, to mourn, to grieve. These are all synonyms that we find within the scriptures. Uh, it's good to be able to express those emotions and sometimes to express them in really ugly ways, right? So uh, one of the reasons why in our Bible we have so many, these are called lamentations, right? There's an entire book called Lamentations, but there are many lamentations throughout the Bible. Uh, Ruth has a lot of lamentations in it. Job has a lot of lamentations in it. The Psalms have a lot of lamentations in them. What they are is they are cries of anguish before God. That's what a lamentation is. It's a prayer of grief. And they're all over the scriptures. And the reason why they're there is to teach us as Christians, how do you engage with those emotions in a way that they don't drown you? Right? You can't shut them out, but how do you engage with them in a way that uh, they don't drown you? Well, you have to do it collectively. Right? You have to do it with people who aren't going to let you drown in them. They're going to grieve with you, but if you start going too far, they're going to help pull you back a little bit. That's the whole point, right? So if I'm grieving with another person, there will be times where I'm going too far and they need to pull me back. And then there will be times where they go too far and I need to pull them back. We can help one another go through this grieving process and cry and mourn and weep in the appropriate manner. But then when we start getting to the really nihilistic conclusions, which can happen very easily of, well, what's the point of life at all? 
Is this going to be my life now? Is this just going to be loss after loss after loss? And it's never going to get better. And I'm always going to be crying, right? This is what we see in, say, the book of Jeremiah, where he says, Why is my wound incurable? And oh, that my head were made out of waters and I would never cease from crying, you know? That's, that's the kind of lamentations we see in the scriptures. And God has to pull Jeremiah back and say, yes, it's tough right now, but things will get better. Things will actually look up again. You will experience joy again. You will experience goodness again. And that's important to have that. Uh, the other important thing is if you're going to grieve with someone, don't be too quick to correct their theology. Uh, you know, in the book of Lamentations, for instance, Jeremiah flat out says yeah, sure. that God has abandoned him. He says that God is abusing him. He actually, he actually does say that uh, in Lamentations chapter 3, he says that his affliction is so great that he doesn't even remember what prosperity looks like mm. and that he's going to be laid in the dust of the earth to death and that he's going to feed on gravel for the rest of his miserable life. And you, you read it and you're like, wow, where's the faith, Jeremiah? Well, remember, that's in the Bible. That's scripture, right? And the very next verse, by the way, he says, Great is your faithfulness, and for this reason I am not overwhelmed, for your mercies are new every morning. Most Christians know that passage, but they don't know the context of when Jeremiah said that, yeah. right? It's a, it's a very depressing chapter, but it has hope within it, right? Holding on to hope in the midst of grief is a very difficult thing, but when you're doing it again in a community or before God, that hope has a through line through your grief that allows you to grieve with hope, right? To, to not lose out on what the grief is supposed to do for you. Uh, in our country, for whatever reason, we have this idea that grief is a solitary act, that I'm grieving and so I don't want to hang out with people. And I, I counsel so many people where, like, I'm a stranger. You know, they're just talking to me for the first time and they're just opening up about all this stuff. And I'm like, have you told your friends about that? They're like, no. And you're going to tell me? Like, I'm a str- I don't know you, you know, like, why would you feel comfortable grieving in front of a stranger, but not in front of your family, not in front of your friends, not in front of the people that actually care about you and know what you're going through. And it's like this embarrassment. It's, it's like, okay, I could, I could do this in front of a stranger because you're a professional, but I can't do that in front of my friends. It should be the opposite, right? You should have greater difficulty expressing things to me as stranger than to your family, Right. We are supposed to grieve with those who grieve. We're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice. Your family is there to help you. Your friends are there to help you through your grieving process. And if you're isolating yourself, you're, guaran- you're almost guaranteeing that the grieving process is going to make you worse. It's going to make you a worse person. And one of the tragedies of living in our modern society where it's more rare for these large tragedies to occur to you is back in the day, you know, uh, one of the books we went over recently is a book by Jean-Jacques Rousseau called Emile. And it's a parenting book. It's a bad one. We went over it a little bit. But one of the things that he wrote in there that really struck me is he said that half of kids before they were the age of 10 would be dead in his culture. That was shocking to me. I was like, oh my gosh. So 50%, if you had, if you had five kids, you're going to lose two and a half of them, however that's possible. You know, like you're, you're going to lose half of your children before they make it to the age of 10, if you're lucky. Mm. Right? That's the culture that they're in. Losing a child in there, it's not that it wasn't a grievous thing to happen, but it was so common that people around you would be like, oh, wow, like, I'm so sorry. You know, we just lost our daughter last year. You know, what, what can we do for you? How can we help you? But now someone loses, has like a miscarriage or loses a child, and everyone around them gets really awkward because they're like, I don't know what to say. You know, I don't know what to do. And, and again, I'll counsel other people that, that will alienate themselves from the people who are suffering. 
and they'll say, well, I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to tell them. I don't, I don't know how to minister to them. I don't, it's kind of awkward. Maybe they just need space. Like, no, maybe you need space. They don't need space. They need you. They need you to be close to them. And it's not maybe about you having the right words. Maybe it's about you just being there for them yeah. and helping them through this process. Yeah. Um, the final thing I'll mention uh, to, to understand the grieving process is this metaphor was given to me a couple of years ago, and I really like it. Don't think of the grieving process of like traveling from one position on the map to another, right? Like you're driving from your house to work or something like that. Uh, you know, you're, you're in grief and then you, you drive and then you get to healing and that's how it works. Think of it like running a distance on a track, right? So when you're running a distance on a track, let's say I'm running two miles on a track. Well, you know, that's eight laps, you know, and, and so when you're running around the track, it's easy to feel like I'm not getting anywhere because you're hitting the same curves and you're going on the same straights. Well, just because you're going through the same area doesn't mean you're not gaining ground. Mm -hmm. And when you're grieving, it's like that. You're going to feel like, I don't feel like I'm getting any better because I feel like I was just incredibly sad about this and then yesterday I was feeling a little bit better and now today I feel a lot worse and what's going on. Well, that, that is the grieving process. And that's what's so discouraging about it is sometimes you feel like, I don't feel like I'm getting any better because I'm hitting the same problems I'm going through the same thoughts over and over again. Well, it doesn't mean you're not getting better. It just means that you're going through the same thoughts. And that process takes time. And it depends on the depth of the grief and the sorrow that you're going to have to move through these things, right? So uh, if, if, it's a, if it's a large amount of loss, it might take you years to yeah. fully process that grief. Right. You know, and, and again, it's so easy as a friend to think like, wow, man, that happened a year ago. You're still sad about that you know like and, and you, maybe you don't say that out loud hopefully you don't say that out loud but in the back of your head you might think you might think well you know they lost their mom a couple years ago i mean that's yeah. that's life well it doesn't mean it's not sad it doesn't mean that the the birthday of their mom who just passed away is not going to still be a sad day for them because they don't have their mom in their life anymore you know or their dad or their child or whoever so be available to grieve with people and understand again it's a process and we go through it by allowing enough of our emotions in to process them and get them out without allowing them to drown us, without allowing them to take them, take us under and keep us in that dark, desolate place for too long. Um, there's more I could say about that, but uh, I think we've talked about this a little bit uh, too long. I think we got some other questions to go over. But yeah, uh, any, any thoughts or? No, it's great. I mean, it's obviously something I think we all face, questioning you know, why things happen and where is God and all that stuff. So very good. Thank you. Uh, sharing those things. Um, yeah, we have a question from Taylor, um, uh, referring to 1 Peter 3, 7. What does it mean that women are the weaker vessel? I'll let you guys handle this one. <laughs> well, uh, there's, there's two possible interpretations of that passage. So uh, the, word, the words translated weaker vessel are a good translation. The word weaker literally means weaker, and the word vessel literally means vessel. So <laughs> Sounds like a good translation. Yeah. <laughs> so... There are two possible ways to interpret that. Either A, the metaphor is a vessel as in he's using a metaphor for like a container of some sort. Uh, the other way to interpret it is that the vessel is not a metaphor, but he's actually just talking about the woman's body. Right? And both of those are, are, like I said, equal ways to interpret this particular passage. So if you look at the passage in its context, he's giving advice to husbands that husbands are to dwell with their wives with understanding, giving honor to them as to the weaker vessel. So one way of interpreting it 
is he has just gone over a woman's role and responsibility within marriage to give respect and dignity to her husband um, and to clothe herself with glory by putting on a, a meek and submissive heart, right? And then he goes to the responsibility of husband. So one thing he might be talking about is what we in modern days would call chivalry. He might be saying, well, women have a particular role within, uh, within a marriage, and that is to rear and to take care of the children. And God has given them a body that is equipped to do that. And he's given men a body that is equipped to do the providing and protecting, right? Men are, generally speaking, stronger and more fit than women. And therefore, they're more, their bodies are more geared towards the hard labor and the, I guess you would call it, the, the physical defense of the home and the nation. So that could be what he's saying. He could be saying that husbands are to understand that their wives are more delicate, they're, more, they're, more, uh, they're, they're not built as efficiently as men for the protecting and providing of the home. So men, you need to rise up and you need to do that, right? You need to use your body to the glory of God and this is part of the way you do it. That's one way to interpret it and I think that it's a, it's a valid way to interpret it. The other way is that he's talking about it specifically like a metaphor. So he's looking at men and women as being like vessels or containers for holding something, right? So when you're talking about a container uh, to, to house like food or clothing or something like that, you would use different materials for different containers. So if you were to open up your cupboards or something like that, you would have different containers for different purposes. So some of them might be made out of plastic, some of them might be metallic, some of them might be glass, right? And, and they all have these different uh, purposes within the home. So what he could be saying is the vessel is not talking about the physical strength of the male versus the female, but he might be talking about emotional vulnerability within the male versus the female. Right, so God has given men, and this is, again, a generally true statement, God has given men, uh, the more masculine temperament, the ability to compartmentalize and to endure suffering in a way that's greater than a woman. Right? So uh, a man is able to go to work, have a lot of stress, come home, and if he's dealing with it appropriately, he won't put any of that on his family. He's able to, to go home and to be able to just switch back into family mode and be okay. That's that compartmentalization I was talking about. The metaphor I usually use with couples is think about like air versus water, right? So when temperature in the air changes, you feel it immediately, right? So today it's 80, but last week it was like raining and it was uh, like really, really cold. It just immediately changes and you wouldn't even know that it was cold uh, this weekend in Tucson. But water is different. Uh, just because it's 80 today in Tucson, I wouldn't recommend going swimming in your pool, right? It, it's going to take a couple months for that heat in the air to work its way into the water. Men are like air, right? They can go from emotion to emotion very rapidly. So they could go to, I'm really stressed out, I'm angry at work, and I go home and I'm, I'm happy and everything's great at home. Women are like, I'm stressed out at work, I come home, I'm stressed out at home. Yeah. And it takes me a while to decompress. Now, again, there are more effeminate men that have that same difficulty, and there are more masculine women that don't have that difficulty, but I'm speaking in generalities here. Yeah. Um, so what he could be saying is that women have that propensity to experience emotions at a deeper level and also not be able to switch between them as quickly or as rapidly as a man. Uh, and again, like you know, so if you could have taken a video of it, uh, I told my guy friends that me and Emma were pregnant and Emma told her girlfriends that we were pregnant. And if you could have gotten the reactions on camera, you would see this in just stark clarity, right? So I told my guy friends, hey, you know, we're pregnant. And they're like, dude, that's awesome. 
all right, let's go, you know, play video games or let's go to a movie or something. That's really cool, man. That's so awesome. And and then we're just, we're on with our lives. But Emma tells her sisters, hey, we're pregnant. And they're just like, you know, their their voices hit octaves that they could never hit in normal conversation. They're crying. They're hugging. They're talking about it yeah. for hours. While picking paint colors. Yeah, picking and... paint colors, talking about bassinets and strollers. For guys, it's like, it's literally a 10-second moment. It's, this happened. Very cool. Good All job, right. dude. And that's yeah. it. You know, pat on the back, maybe a hug. Right? That is the difference between men and women. So while we're able to take negative emotions a little bit better than women, we also can't feel positive emotions as deeply and profoundly as women. So that's a bit of a liability between men and women. So that could be what Peter's talking about. He's saying, husbands, you need to be understanding of the fact that your wives feel things in a deeper way than you do. And so you need to understand where they're coming from, and you need to be able to intuitively understand why they're feeling the way they do. Because they feel things more emotionally than you, that means it's more difficult for uh, the more effeminate among us to articulate their thoughts and their feelings in words. Right? Men are more, uh, they're more verbal in the way that they communicate. And so it's very easy for me to be like, I feel this way, I'm going to communicate it to you very directly. Mm. For a woman, she feels it, but she won't necessarily think like I need to communicate this verbally and clearly. It's I'm going to show you what I'm feeling through my behavior. And that seems to be enough. So what Peter is probably saying is husbands perk up, watch your wives and be understanding to what they're going through so that you can intuitively know how to treat them, respect them and minister to them during the difficulties within their life. And as a marriage counselor, I'll tell you this. If there are any men listening, if you want your wife to perk up and to really be like, this is awesome, <laughs> anticipate what your wife needs without her having to tell you. If you can master that, if you can, <laughs> How can you do such that, a thing? <laughs> if you can become intuitive enough to know this is what my wife is feeling, this is what she needs me to do without her ever having to tell you, you have done something that no gift, no vacation <laughs> will ever do. Your no man has ever done. And no man has ever done, you know. If you can learn how to do this, it is very, very special. And it is like learning how to speak a second language. I do encourage women. I'm like, hey, you got you to gotta meet your husband halfway. He's an idiot. He's a big, dumb idiot. He needs you to kind of meet him halfway and not tell him all that's going on in you, but try to give him a head start, right? Try to give him a starting point so you can work off of that. And I had to tell my wife that. I was like, hey, I'm a big, dumb idiot. You know, you got to you got to help me out here. Like, I'm, I'm trying to understand you. I really am. But I am oblivious. I am not very empathetic. I don't have much compassion. Please help me. Give me a little bit of a head start. And she was very kind and gracious to do that for me and, and be like, hey, maybe have you thought about this? And I'm like, oh, you're giving me a hint. Okay. And then <laughs> I'll, try to like, I'll try to figure it out. So she would drop hints for me, and I'm very thankful I found for this that. weird post-it note. What, yeah. what does it mean? <laughs> Emma needs a hug. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, that's, that's what's probably being discussed there. Those are the two ways of taking it. And then, of course, there's how the Internet portrays it, hostile to Christianity. And the best way to deal with that is to first understand that the statement weaker vessel is sandwiched not only between the prefix of honoring them as the weaker vessel, as that treatment being one of higher regard, higher respect, as opposed to seeing them as lesser, the way that that's oftentimes interpreted, and believe it or not, a threat. 
that if you don't do this, if you don't treat your wife with the honor due to the weaker vessel, your prayers will be hindered, is how the verse ends. That there's a severing of your relationship with God based on the treatment or lack thereof properly of the treatment of your wife. So when we are pushed, basically, into the realm of sexism and given that sort of accusation of recognizing that men and women are different, then we're put into a position where we go, so why does it treat it as a position of honor? Are you interpreting it the way that they intended it? And another good way to showcase this is to essentially kill two birds with one stone and to go to the Old Testament and show that this was the same system. Because in Malachi chapter 2, verses 7 through 12, I believe, it makes a very interesting observation of Israel being cursed because of their abuse of their wives. Mm. Now, you can say, well, this Christian I know abused his spouse, or these non-Christian groups don't or treat their wives better in certain cultures. Fine, all that is well and good, but if we're going to actually stick to our primary religious texts, these are actually the passages of the first religion's primary sources of condemning and making the sort of gentleness that's assumed of men treating women. The idea that you don't hit a girl, that's a Christian thing. No pagan culture, they adopted and co-opted it in various ways over time, but no primary religious document. You go to the Theogony, you go to the Quran, you go to the Hadith and Sunnah, you go to the Bhagavad Gita and others, women are objects, and that the treatment of them is actually considered lesser. When Christianity permeated and influenced what we call Western culture, and even in the East to some regards, there is this working assumption of Judeo-Christian values. So the idea of regard is what also needs to be taken into consideration mm. along with the points that were being made. Mm. Very good. Well, great question, Taylor. Thank you for that and being part of the broadcast. Uh, question from Cynthia along the same lines, I, I would say. Um, if a church has a woman or female guest speaker who is not a pastor but speaking about the Bible to the congregation, is it still wrong? I know what the Bible says about women being pastors, and I'm not sure if she's one or not. So female pastors and women teaching the Bible in church. Yeah. Go. Uh, I actually wrote a joke about this, but I'll, I'll save it for the recording. Uh, when we're talking about the idea of female pastors, a pastor is another term for a shepherd, and it's referring to positions of leadership. Let me read the first verse here so that everyone's on the same page. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or golds or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence, then goes on to give the reason, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression, and then it goes on to note a messianic point. They're saved the same way we are. If you have a question about verse 15, let us know. But the point being made is, there is a comparison being made of roles in, in the church based on gender. And if there's any limitation that's to be made, it's to have authority over a man. Mm. Now, skeptics will try to double down and say, at your reading over, it says not to teach or to have authority over a man. 
But the problem with that is other passages note there are specific contexts in which not only women are permitted to teach, encouraged to teach, but literally equipped by God for teaching, for the gift of prophecy, for speaking God's word. Examples of this would be Philip's seven daughters. We talked about this in the book of Acts, chapter 9, noting, or 8, excuse me, uh, Philip the Evangelist had seven daughters who were prophetesses. Uh, we have a direct mention of Isaiah's wife being a prophetess, as well as Ezekiel's. We have reference of Miriam, the older sister of Moses, being a prophetess and prophesying accordingly, even mentioning that in reference to her challenging of his marriage, which was a sin on her part, but I digress. Uh, on and on it goes. But when we look at people like Deborah, we look at people who could fulfill these roles that were generally reserved for men and that God would call men to fulfill, it doesn't mean like you were talking about with their being effeminate and masculine men and women, vice versa, that there are exceptions to the rule. But the idea that carte blanche in all sets and circumstances, women cannot teach. No, the passage specifies teach or to have authority over a man, and noting there is honor and regard for the order of creation in this regard. And if you go in Titus chapter 2, it notes that women are to be teachers of good things, teaching younger women on how to live the sort of godly life they would be in roles of wives or just women in general. But the point being made is, when we ask, is it wrong for a woman to teach the Bible? The answer is no. In fact, they would be able to provide the sort of insight and perspective that other women would be more blessed by than if a guy like me just came up and started giving uh, historical and geographical details that will make you fall asleep faster than you thought you could when you woke up this morning. If, on the other hand, people you know, take this as an initiative and in saying, well, in order for us to properly understand the Bible, we need to inverse it and say, society is the authority. Mm. Our culture is the authority on how we handle scripture. And so because this can be perceived as a limiting of women, therefore, Katie bar the door, everything's going to be set loose in a moment. Everyone who is in a position of leadership must be a woman, which is object rebellion, not the ideal way you should be modeling your church. The question is, is it wrong? The answer is no. Is it always right? The answer is also no. If the opportunity for someone is given, the equipment and the calling of someone is given to teach God's word, then do it well. Do it right. Gender has nothing to do with it. But if you're being called to a ministry, that's different. If that's going to line up with God's word, he has the right to define how his church is going to be structured. And if you say, well, cultures, and you won't obviously say this, but you will be saying that, Culture is a higher authority, and my position in society gives me more pride and upliftment and empowerment to rebel against the Bible than to submit to the plain statements of it. I wouldn't say that's a calling from God. I'd say that's a calling of your flesh. So the question is, for the third time, is it wrong <laughs> for a woman to teach the Bible? The answer is no. The idea is that anyone who's gifted by the Spirit has the right to share his word. But if someone's going to call you to a ministry, that's far different than someone who's simply practicing the spiritual gift. I am not necessarily an evangelist. That doesn't mean I don't ever share my faith. I'm not necessarily called to be an administrator, but that doesn't mean that I can't handle my finances or give someone else advice on how to not be foolish in that regard. 
But if on the other hand, I'd say, you know, I've been called to the ministry of administrations or evangelism, you're probably better off sticking to what God's actually called you to in student ministry. And I'm content in that. And if someone on the other hand were to say, you're holding yourself back, you're, you're letting your gender or your social climate limit the work that God could do in you. You have a gift and a calling to share God's word with people, and you need to get out there and practice it. Well, I'd raise my hand and go, yeah, in certain situations, the Spirit equipped me for it, but my calling isn't the same for my equipping. The Spirit distributes to each individually the gifts as he wills. To some, prophecy. Notice, not to men, prophecy, but to some, administration, some hospitality, some tongues, some interpretation of tongues. We all have something to contribute. And if you have the opportunity to contribute sound Bible teaching, do it. But if you have the opportunity to pursue pastorship, make sure that that is something also outlined in Scripture, which is the one thing that women are limited from pursuing in the body of Christ. Just like men, one limit for women, aren't permitted in the body of Christ to bring children into this world. One limit to men. Note the point as well on how culture tries to challenge that, but we... We, we, to quote uh, King T'Challa from Black Panther, we don't do that here. Yeah. That's the point. Indeed. Yeah. Anything to wrap things up? Yeah, uh, real quick. Great answer. But um, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives a, <clears throat> a little bit of illumination on this as well. He talks about how the male and female genders that God has created us with are there to glorify particular attributes within the Trinity. So he actually says that the man is created to reflect qualities within the Father, and the woman is created to reflect qualities that are found within the Son. So that, that's a really amazing insight that Paul gives us there. So he's saying that the Father acts in a very particular role within the triune Godhead mm. as the source and the head of the Trinity. And then the Son acts as the physical representation of the Father's will. He also acts in the more practical manners within uh, the Godhead but he acts in submission to the Father. And so what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as well as in 1 Timothy 2, the passage that uh, Sean was quoting, is that roles within marriage, as well as in leadership within the body of Christ, are there to be a reflection of that, right? That's why they exist. So he doesn't actually mention in these passages qualification. He's not saying that, well, men are just better teachers than women, um, or men are better leaders than women. Now, I could pull out some statistics that show that there are certain things in the way that men's temperament is geared that helps them to be leaders and things in women that help them to lead not in an ethereal abstract sense, but to lead in the home or lead in different other vocations. Uh, for instance, women dominate nursing fields as well as teaching fields, uh, actually like elementary school teachers and things like that. But men tend to dominate more of the business world and engineering world, and there's reasons for that. But mm -hmm. uh, that kind of is a digression from what we're really talking about. Paul's argument isn't about capability. Paul's argument is about glorification of God. He's saying the gender distinctions are there so that people can see the invisible nature of God in this visible world. So people could say, well, like, why are the men leading in your church? And you could be a chauvinist and say, well, because men are better at leading than women. Or you could say, well, because men reflect a very particular aspect of the triune God, and women reflect a very different aspect of the triune God. We're both reflecting God, though, right? There's no distinction. The Son is not lesser than the Father for taking on the particular role that he has. However, 
when people come in, they should see those distinctions within the church body. That's an important distinction that we have to make. Yeah. Same within the marriage. I have a very particular role within the marriage that was given to me by God. It doesn't mean that I'm necessarily a better leader in all aspects than my wife, but it does mean that I have that that role was given to me to reflect a very particular part of God's glorification mm. and nature that is within me and within my marriage. That's an important thing that I have to do. Same with my wife. She's recognizing the same thing. So um, I am always willing to talk to people who are like, well, it doesn't make any sense because, you know, I have this college degree, and so obviously I would make a better provider than my husband. Okay, I, I think there's always room for negotiation within these roles. However, you can't throw them out because of these exceptions. You can't say, well, therefore, there are no roles. You know, therefore, you can just do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. No, no, no. no. Those roles are there to reflect God's glory. I'm okay with having play within the roles, right? Saying, like, in your situation, it does make more sense for the woman to go to work and for the man to have the primary role as caretaker of the kids. However, the role still is there, right? The role of head of the house is still there for the husband. How is that implemented in your home, mm. right? You can't just say, well, it's gone because I, I bring home the bacon, so therefore I'm the head of the home. It doesn't work that way. Mm. You still have to glorify God in the particular situation that you're in. Yeah, very good. Well, Cynthia, thanks for that question. It's a, it's a great question. I hope that helps you out. Yeah, uh, we're coming up on the end of our show here, but I'm going to jump to this question because I'm the host and I get to uh, From Mark. <laughs> Apparently, it's a, a follow-up from yesterday. Uh, I don't know what you talked about yesterday, but this will give you an indication. You were here yesterday, right, Peter? Yeah, you should listen to the show, Dave. You and Adrian. Good. Oh, I did. I did. <laughs> I did listen to it all the time. Um, a follow-up from yesterday. Why did God create people like Jeffrey Dahmer with the violent gene? So is there a violent gene, and why did God, it's kind of the same theme we've been talking about, God allowing or even creating bad things? No, no, no great question. I don't know what that means. So, um, the violent gene? Yeah. Yeah. So it is true that various people have different temperaments that would predispose them to being more violent than others. So what we were talking about la yesterday was the shooting, the tragic shooting that happened in Nashville yesterday. And there are people who go through the same circumstances, don't know God, go through the exact same circumstances that create a guy like Dahmer or uh, Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy, and they just never go those routes. So it's very clear that there is something inherent in these people's temperaments that predispose them to act out in these incredibly violent ways. So the question is, why would God allow for that? Well, God, in every part of our personality, in every part of our temperament, you have to think of it this way. There's a potential for good and there's a potential for evil in everything about you, right? So, for instance, a guy like Hitler, there's things in his temperament that allowed him to become the symbol of evil and wickedness that has existed and pervaded through the 1900s, right? When people think of evil, they think of Adolf Hitler, right? There's things in his temperament that allowed him to do that. However, if you would have taken everything about his personality and geared it towards good, you would have had a very good man. Right? The things about Adolf Hitler's temperament that allowed him to do that is, number one, he was very emotional, and therefore he could play to people's emotions very well. Number two, he was able to see injustice very re in a very real way, and he was motivated to do something about it. Mm. A lot of people aren't. Uh, number three, he was a very qualified leader, an incredible orator. Right? There were all these good things about him. But if you flip those to a dark and nefarious purpose, you've created a monster. Yeah. Right? Same with Satan. Right? His potential for good was so good that when it was geared towards evil, he becomes the personification of evil within the universe, right? Literally. So uh, 
when you think about a guy like Dahmer, it's like, what about his personality could have been geared towards good? Well, maybe he lacked uh, a lot of serial killers and um, sociopaths lack, lack human empathy, right? It's hard for them to empathize with other people. Now, we've talked about this a little bit throughout the show, but one of the benefits of that is it predisposes them to be more intellectual, right? So they could actually study things on an abstract level better than people who are more emotive, right? People who are more emotive experience the world primarily through experiences, like actual physical experiences that they can understand. People who are less emotive and less emotional can understand things in pure intellectual ways in completely abstract ways using their imagination to provide better paths forward for humanity. But if you take that in a negative sense, it's because I can't experience or empathize with what you're going through, I don't care about your feelings because they're not real to me, and therefore I could predispose you to torture as long as it makes me feel good, right? That's a negative thing that can come out of that. Um, another thing that's positive about them is they tend to be loners. Sounds negative, but people who are loners are once again people who can uh, do things in an isolated sense. A lot of the greatest thinkers on earth are people that had to isolate for long periods of time and do things even though other people were telling them it was a bad idea or foolish. So these are all good qualities, but if you participate with the flesh and the deprivations of good that exist in the human spirit, you're going to become a much worse person because of these things. But if you participate with the work of the spirit in your life and God's work in you, you can become a much better person. I think the best person you could see this in is actually David Wood. Christian apologist, and you could see both, right? You could see what he was like without God and now what he's like with God. And you could see all those temperaments working their way out in those different facets. Uh, yeah, very good. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for your questions today. We'll be back same time tomorrow with more of your questions. God bless you. Have a wonderful evening. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.